Uh, you've heard the five, five chap first five chapters of the book, and now we finally come to the actual fall of Jericho, probably one of the most well-known stories, I guess, in the Old Testament. Everything so far has been preparing Joshua and the Israelites for the first and most dramatic battle the Israelites were to face upon their entry into the promised land, the land that God had promised to their ancestors. Now, as a bit of a memory aid this morning, because I know I need these things and other people do sometimes as well, I've come up with three Fs, okay? Fighting, following, and faith. Fighting, following, and faith. You may want to just hang on to that, and we'll see if that is helpful or not. Fighting, following, and faith. Now, like me, you might be much more comfortable thinking and reflecting on faith and following than you might be on fighting. And I don't think that's that surprising for us because we follow Jesus Christ, Jesus who taught his disciples to be peacemakers. He taught his disciples to turn the other cheek. He taught his disciples to love their enemies. So there is always a tension in this sense here. But I want us to ask ourselves this morning, what does it mean as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, to fight the good fight of faith? Paul, in uh, the first letter he wrote to Timothy, he made it clear there is a fight to be fought. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, it's on the screen there as well. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, in fact, we would have to ignore an awful lot of scripture if we were ever to live the Christian life in this fallen world without at times having to stand up for what we believe in, to be willing to stand up in that sense and fight, and by doing so to come into conflict with the views and the ways of the world. The writings of the, the, the New Testament as well are full of texts that warn us repeatedly to always be on our guard as Christians. They remind us that there is an enemy waging a war against us, an enemy trying to keep us from claiming the inheritance we have in Jesus Christ. The world, the flesh, our own selves, and the devil are united against Christ and his people just as the nations in Cana were united against Joshua and the Jewish people before Jericho. I think it's quite interesting to note that in recent years, many of the more militant songs of the church seem to have been removed from the songbooks because the idea of warfare rather disturbed people and again seemed to contradict the words of Jesus. But I think such zealous editors seem to have forgotten the main theme of the whole Bible is in fact God's holy war against Satan, against sin, and against death. As Christians, we are called to fight a holy war. We are called not necessarily to do so with worldly arms, but definitely with the spiritual ones we have been given. To be willing to stand up for what we understand is God's way and God's will, in this fallen world. So as followers of Jesus, we need to take care that we don't cultivate an overly sentimental emphasis on peace and goodwill and ignore the very real spiritual battle that all who have sworn allegiance to Jesus are in some way or other 
engaged in. Paul warns in Acts 20, he has this image of savage wolves that go around prowling about, ready to destroy the church, given half a chance. And in Ephesians 16, he teaches that the Christian fight is not against flesh and blood, but against enemies in the spiritual realms. And because of this, weapons that are spiritual have been given for us to fight with too. And again, another passage, 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish all strongholds. But having reminded us of this daily reality that we need to be mindful, let us also, like those Israelites before the walls of Jericho, recognize we fight from a position of victory already, not just of a victory which we hope for. If there's one verse in this passage that Nick read that I'd like you to try and remember this morning, it's verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. When the Lord spoke to Joshua, he didn't say, I will. I will deliver Jericho into your hands. He says, I have. And that was with the walls of Jericho still standing, strong and firm and tall. And I point to this verse because in a similar way, as Christians, we too stand in a position of assured victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus defeated Satan not only throughout his earthly ministry, but most completely through the cross. Colossians 2 and verse 13, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then even beyond the cross, we have the hope to which he has called us through his resurrection and ascension. And again, Paul in Ephesians says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, opened as it were, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated, at him, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all worldly rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. For God has placed all things under his feet. We are fighting followers of Jesus Christ. And his word tells us that we have the victory. The victory, in that sense, has already been won, despite the evidence all still remaining before our eyes that it has not. Again, with the, the, the walls of Jericho, I have given it into your hands, and the walls are standing still for that time, tall and high. But like Joshua and like those Israelites, what we have to do is claim his promise, to trust in it and walk in it, to follow in the light of the promise. Jesus has conquered the world. Jesus has conquered the flesh. Jesus has conquered the devil. 
And if and only if we hold on to that truth that Jesus is the conqueror, we can in our own way be conquerors too through him. I think it's possible to believe in God's promises but still not to act on them in our actual living. Believing a promise, I think, is always a bit like being given a cheque. If you remember what cheques looked like, by the way. It's only when we, as it were, cash it in, do we actually benefit from it. In this passage, God calls his people to be both willing to stand and fight, but also to step out and follow him in faith. So then looking at the second F, following. Like Joshua and the Israelites, we are called to seek the Lord, we're called to wait upon the Lord, but then once we have received his word, we're called to trust in it and to follow in faithful action. Joshua did not take the city merely by clever human military tactics. The strategy all along was the Lord's. And Joshua and through him the Israelites were called to just follow the Lord. Joshua received his orders from the Lord and acted on them even when God's plan for the conquest of Jericho must have seemed very foolish from a military point of view. What they were told to do was definitely not good military wisdom, but it was God's wisdom, which in the prophet Isaiah tells us is far above ours, so different to ours. Isaiah 55 and verses 8 and 9, if you wish to look at it. In fact, the one thing we see throughout this book of Joshua is that God so often seems to delight in using people and asking them to follow plans that often seem rather foolish in worldly eyes. Again, New Testament, Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. In the Old Testament, whether it's Joshua with the trumpets going round Jericho, whether it's Gideon with his torches, or whether it's that boy David with the sling, God delights in using human witness and apparent foolishness to defeat his enemies and glorify his name. There's not necessarily clever ideas that we need to follow. It is God's good way and good will. Now in our story, God's instructions were that the armed men should march round Jericho once a day for six days, followed, by, followed with the seven priests each blowing a trumpet. And the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord would come next, and finally as a rear guard there would be the army. For the first six Days, the only noise permitted was the sound of the trumpets. But on the seventh day, the procession would march around the city seven times before the priests would give a final long blast on the trumpet. And the marchers would all shout their victory cry. And then God, as he had promised, would cause the walls to fall down so that the soldiers could go and take the city. In this reading, there is a significant emphasis on the number seven. You've got seven priests, you've got seven trumpets, you've got seven days marching, and finally you've got seven circuits on the last day, on the seventh day. And the number seven, as you may well know, is a number which in the biblical numerology, as it were, represents perfection, it represents completion. 
And we see the most wonderful example of it in uh, the creation stories in Genesis. And when God finished his work, it was on the seventh day he rested and blessed it. And for this reason, the number seven was written into very much, much of the liturgical life of Israel. The Sabbath was on the seventh day. There are seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost. There's seven years to a sabbatical year. There's seven times seven, 49 years before a year of Jubilee. But coming back to the reading here, the prevalence of the number seven here in this setting speaks of God's ability to finish whatever he has started. In this case, it was leading the Israelites into the land he had promised his ancestors, their ancestors, sorry. The journey had taken longer than it could have done because of the Israelites' rebellious ways. But nevertheless, God persevered with his goal. He did not abandon his promises or the work of his hands. God does not give up on a work he has started. He does not set aside the promises he has made. Whether that promise be for the whole nation of Israel or for the continued work of salvation in an individual soul, it is good to know that our God is no quitter. Joshua, near the end of his life, towards the end of the book of Joshua, had these words to say on the matter. matter. This is uh, chapter 21, verse 14. Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know, though, with all of your heart and soul, that not one of the good promises of the Lord your God, your God gave you, has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. As Christians, we are called to stand up and to fight for the Lord. And we're called to follow him in faith and trust in his good word. The battle is the Lord's, not ours. I've got a little reading here from 2 Chronicles 20 where a prophet was speaking to King Jehoshaphat. And he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who listen in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army that faces you, for the battle is not yours, it is the Lord's. Whoops, he went down. He's doing so well as well. Oh, he was. So last, last F, faith. And courageous faith. Again, if you think about the book of Joshua, it's one thing the book of Joshua is constantly saying, be courageous, you know, not, not an insipid faith, you know, like a... Now, courageous faith. And why can we be courageous? Because the victory is the Lord's. Faith is not necessarily believing in spite of evidence. If you think about the people of Israel, they've been given one demonstration after another, proving that God's word and God's power could be trusted. The Lord had opened up the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptian army, cared for his people for 40 years in the wilderness, defeated great kings, dried up the Jordan River, and brought his people safely safe and sound into the promised land and as Christians we have the evidence of God's ultimate victory given to us in the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of what God has already done for us in Christ we can be assured 
but the victory is the Lord's. And therefore our eyes should be set on the Lord himself, not so much on the fight, but on the Lord. Again, reason that song we sang a bit earlier, Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus, is that wherever we are, especially when we are in a fight, sometimes we get blinded by the fight, we get blinded by the struggle. Right? But as Christians, we want to look to the Lord in that fight and seek his provision in it. Joshua shared the Lord's plan with the priests, for it's important that the ark of the Lord should be at its proper place as they marched around uh, Jericho, for it represents the presence of the Lord amongst his people. Without that, Israel could have marched and priests could have blown their trumpets till kingdom come, maybe, until all of them dropped from weariness. But if the Lord was not with them, was not before them, they would have no victory. So as with the crossing of the River Jordan, so the conquest of Jericho was an example of God's people following him in faith. Joshua and the people listened to God's orders, they believed them, and they followed. God did all the rest. Many years later, the Holy Spirit directed the writer of the letter to the Hebrews to use this event of Jericho as one of the great examples of by faith. There's a whole list. If you look at Hebrews 11, there's that 40 verses, I think, of by faith, by faith, by faith. And But it starts, verse 1 starts, faith is being sure of what we hope, of what we hope for, and certain of what we don't see. Because this is what the ancients were commended for. And so are we. In verse 30, I think, of, of uh, Hebrews 11, it says, By faith and by faith. Not by, because of the Israelites so much in their fighting. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the peace. A people had marched around them for seven days. So I think the story of the fall of Jericho is an encouragement to God's people to trust his promises and to be willing to obey his instructions and step out in faith. To be willing to fight a good fight and play our part in God's holy war, no matter how impossible or impractical the situation might appear to be. It's my obs observation as a Christian pilgrim like you, that the only way we tend to grow in faith is when we accept new challenges and trust God for the victory. We stay in our comfort zones and with the things that are nice and safe and easy when nothing ever seems to change a great deal. As we're people of faith, we need to be willing to cash that check in. That check we've received in Christ. We've got to cash that one in. Take hold of that promise and the riches of that promise. As I say, throughout this book of, of, of Joshua, we will hear again and again God's call to his people and therefore it's called to us here in Milford to step out and to do so with courage, with courageous faith. And it's my prayer that we, we, we done. This church has done such a thing in the past, and it's my prayer that this church will continue to seek to do such things in the future. But at the end of our days, we, like Paul, might be able to say these words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Amen.